It'd be great if you have a Bible or an iPhone or whatever you're um, going to look at and the passage that was read to us from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to really focus on the words, here I stand, um, which we just briefly touched on last night. But how did Martin Luther come to the point where he used those words, here I stand? Next Saturday, you're going to have a session in the academy um, with Phil Arthur talking about Martin Luther in detail. This is really just a five-minute snapshot for those who maybe can't get there next uh, Saturday night or if you've never really heard the basis of where we came to um, have the words, Here I Stand. So we're going to go back to some dates And the date is 1505, when Martin Luther was a student at the University of Erfurt. And he was, like some of you, just around 20 years of age. And he was out walking. Um, The village was called Stottenheim in Germany. He was out in the fields, uh, and suddenly there was a bolt of lightning. A storm came, there was a bolt of lightning. And the lightning struck right by where Martin Luther was, and he was thrown to the ground. He was a Roman Catholic, and he called out to one of the saints. The saint was St. Anne. He said, St. Anne, save me. So he asked for protection. And he said that if he survived, he would give himself to a monastery. He would take a monastic vow, which he did. And so at the age of 21 or so, he went into the order of the Augustinian hermits and he celebrated as a Roman Catholic his first mass in 1507. And he gave himself 100% to monastic life. The hardships, the duties which he had to go through, the fasting, just imagine fasting and the kind of food we've had for the last 24 hours. He gave himself to fasting, to praying for hours on end, to penance, to confession, and to a really Spartan lifestyle, all trying to earn favor with God. This was religious observance, which was actually unrivaled, if you look at it. He was trying to climb the ladder of duty, trying to reach, trying to grasp out to find peace with God. And as Luther wrote around that time, I hoped I might find peace of conscience with my fasting, my prayer vigils, all of those things which I miserably afflicted my body with. But the more that I did it, the more that I sweated it out, he actually says, the less peace and tranquility I actually had. But Martin Luther was an academic, and so he studied for a doctorate at the University of Wittenberg and obtained a doctorate in theology in 1512 and started to lecture on the Bible. So in 1513, he lectured for a year on the Psalms. 
1515, he lectured for a year on Romans. In 1516, a year on Galatians. 1517, a year on Hebrews. So here were four years of lecturing on the Bible. But it was in 1517 that his attention was drawn to the selling of indulgences. Now, the selling of indulgences were at that time to support the project of the then Pope Leo for the construction of the Sistine Chapel in Rome. And he'd hired a painter. He didn't hire Vic, who was a fantastic painter. He hired Michelangelo, okay, who's a little bit more expensive. So to hire Michelangelo required plenty of cash. And uh, they sold indulgences in order to raise the money for the project. And basically an indulgence was to rescue your loved ones who may have died and yourself if you were still alive, obviously, from the punishment of purgatory, which was a teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, which is nowhere found in the Bible. That is, pay money, and you can reduce the punishment for your sins after death. And so people paid money. And there was a little ditty that the monk who was going around doing this, a monk by the name of Tetzel had, and his ditty was, when a coin into the coffer's rings a soul from purgatory springs. And that was the ditty going around. Now, Luther knew that it was wrong. He knew that this was not found in the Bible that he had actually been uh, lecturing on. And especially when the Pope decreed a plenary indulgence, which was if you gave more money, you could wipe out all of your sins by giving that money. So Luther was now driven by an undertaking that this was wrong, and his reading of the Bible was that repentance was something completely different from penance. And so he thought this was a scandal, and he basically wanted an academic debate about indulgences. And so in 1517... He placed 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg. Now, until recently, I'd never read the 95 theses. And I was very surprised they're here. I mean, he did them in German, of course. They're in English. I actually thought, foolishly, that the theses were about doctrinal things, such as justification and uh, peace with God, as it is uh, explained in the main, the main doctrines of the Bible, most of the theses are about the selling of indulgences when you read them through. So he put these on the door of the church for a public debate. But it was controversial, clearly, because not only were they on the door, people, the printing had just begun to be a, a real uh, important issue. And so the theses were printed off and distributed. But it was also about this time that Luther, in 1519, and he would put this, I believe, as his conversion. So it's after the theses are put on the door that 
I believe from what we read from Luther that he was actually converted. And he says that when he was studying Romans 1, specifically verse 17 of Romans 1, reading about the gospel and being not ashamed of the gospel because in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed. How to be right with God is revealed is what Romans 1.17 says. And Luther says, as I daily meditated on these words, it made me feel as though I'd been reborn and as though I had entered through open gates into paradise or heaven itself. And so it was his understanding of Romans 1, which he'd lectured on for a year, years before, but had never seen, that he now has an understanding of. And it's after he'd nailed those theses against indulgence selling to the wall of the church in Wittenberg. And so that is in a, a, a nutshell how we get to his credible statement of here I stand. Because the Roman Catholic Church, which he was still a member of, wanted to clearly do something about Luther's um, teaching. Um, he was sent what is called a papal bull from the Pope for his excommunication, which he immediately burned publicly. And he refused in any way to recant his views. And so he had to go to this Diet of Worms in Germany and before the Holy Roman Emperor. He was condemned as a heretic and all of his literature was burned. And at that point, he made this statement of, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. So... 500 years from 1517, October the 31st, when he pinned the things to the door, but just less than 500 years to the two events of 1519 and 1517. Now, with that background, you can see the importance of standing. And we come to the verse in 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 15, which says, Brethren, Stand fast or stand firm. So this is an exhortation for us by the Apostle Paul to stand fast or stand firm. It's vital that we see the context of this verse. And to do that, you need to go back in the chapter to verse 2 where Paul talks about not being shaken in mind or troubled. But, verse 15, stand fast. So I want you to imagine two bookends. This bookend is saying, do not be shaken. This bookend is saying, stand fast or stand firm. Now what's in between those two bookends. Don't be shaken, stand firm. And we need to see what is in between. Most of the books, most of the writing in the New Testament has got a, a line which you can thread through the book. 
a theme. And in Thessalonians, one of the clear themes is about the second coming of Christ. You can go back to 1 Thessalonians, and in chapter 4 and 5, most of the chapters concern the second coming of Christ. When you come to 2 Thessalonians, and actually 1 and 2 Thessalonians are probably some of the very earliest writings that we have of the Apostle Paul, 2 Thessalonians also has a theme of the second coming of Christ. So, for example, if you read chapter 1, verse 7 of 2 Thessalonians, it talks about the Lord Jesus Christ being revealed from heaven. And if you look at 1, verse 10, that also talks about that day when he will be glorified in his saints. So that concerns the second coming of Christ. Now look at chapter 2, verse 1. What does it say? Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. So here again is teaching concerning the second coming of Christ. But there's an issue that Paul is confronting. In the context of the second coming of Christ, Paul says, verse 2 of chapter 2, don't be shaken in your minds or troubled as though you've heard from us or a letter from us that Christ has already come. Do you see that in verse 2? It says, do not be shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or word or by letter as if it's coming from us as though the day of Christ has come. So some people were going around saying, Christ has already returned. And Paul says, no, don't be shaken by that. That is not true. That is not right. Why, verse 3, don't let anyone deceive you, for that day will not come unless certain things take place. And then in the next verses, he expounds on what is necessary to take place before Jesus Christ returns. Now, a commentator on the Bible, someone who writes about the Bible called Leon Morris, says this. This is probably the most difficult and obscure passage in the whole of the New Testament. So we're not going there. Okay, it's the most difficult and obscure passage in the New Testament. That's for Ian to tackle sometime, or maybe he's done it already. But it's actually quite a difficult passage because it talks about someone called the man of lawlessness or the lawless one, and there's been all sorts of ideas put forward as to who this man of lawlessness would be before Christ comes again. But what I do want you to note is at the end of this section, before the reading that Steve um, brought us, he talks about those who believe a lie. Verse 11. People who are deluded, who believe a lie, and will be condemned because they do not believe the truth. Now, I hope from those two verses, you can see that this is really applicable to us today. There are so many who are deluded, who believe a lie, 
concerning saying the Bible is not true or false things about the Bible. So this is relevant. So it's in the context of those who are saying false things, who are deluded, who do not believe the truth, that Paul comes in in verse 13 and contrasts it. And the contrast is incredible because the contrast is with those who do believe the truth. Those who believe a lie versus those who believe the truth. And it's really these verses that I just want to focus on uh, for a few moments to see what it is that we need to stand fast in, what we need to stand firm in, what are the foundational truths? Because there is so much delusion around us. There are so many lies. What do we need to stand firm in? And there are four simple things. Number one, stand firm on what a Christian is. Now, what is a Christian? He tells us. He tells us clearly in verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation. What is a Christian? It's someone who is beloved by the Lord, loved by the Lord, and chosen from the beginning for salvation. Now I suggest to you, if you go out into university, school, or work, or next door neighbors, and just say, uh, I'd just like to ask you, what is a Christian? The answers you will get are, a Christian is someone who goes to church, a Christian is someone who does good, a Christian is someone who believes in God, a Christian is someone who is born in a Christian family. What you won't get is this answer, that a Christian is someone loved by God and chosen from the beginning. Now, I don't know if anybody ever watches Pointless on BBC television. Yes, Carol watches Pointless, Tim watches Pointless. This would be a pointless answer if you know what Pointless is. I don't think anyone would come out with this answer, which the Bible gives. But the Bible gives us the answer of what a Christian is, loved by God and chosen from the beginning. Which is why when you sing a hymn such as Loved with Everlasting Love, led by grace that love to know, that is theology. That is what Paul is saying. Or the hymn which Stuart Townend wrote, Loved before the dawn of time, chosen by my maker, hidden in my savior. That is exactly what Paul is saying. That is putting theology, Bible truth, into what we sing. And it's, you know, as we come for a weekend like this, uh, we're amongst friends, uh, we're amongst brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's so important that we try to marry the scripture with what we sing, for example, and let this permeate our thinking and how it relates to when we go into a non-Christian world. 
But we've been loved. We've been loved by God. It's not that I just made a decision to follow Christ, and if it doesn't work out, I'll make another decision to do something different. We've been loved by God. And we've been chosen before the foundation of the world. Now, we could spend a lot of time, and we will never truly understand that. That's an immense truth. It's something which ultimately is beyond our understanding. But we were loved before the dawn of time, which is what Stuart Tannen said. We were loved at the cross when our Lord Jesus Christ died because our names were graven on his hand. We were loved on the day of our conversion. And you say, well, I don't know the day of my conversion. Well, you were loved in that time that God was awakening you and we're loved today and we will be loved for eternity. And that is what we have to stand on. That is what a Christian is. And it's something so important for us to recognize. Now, all of these truths we could amplify and develop and maybe over these days you can think about it a little more. There's one really old hymn which has got quaint, quaint language which I still think expresses truths which we would struggle to express if it wasn't that it was put into this form. Josiah Conder wrote these words, "'Tis not that I did choose thee, for, Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee, hadst thou not chosen me." Thou from the sin that stained me has cleansed and set me free. Of old, thou hast ordained me that I should live for thee. Well, that's what we have to stand firm in. We need to stand firm in that truth. Number two, we also need to stand firm in how we become a Christian. How we become a Christian. And he tells us in verse 13 that it's through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now I want you to note this really carefully. There are two aspects spoken of there. One is the work of the Holy Spirit and one is our work in believing the truth through sanctification, through being set apart by the Holy Spirit and believing the truth. That is exactly what happened to Martin Luther. It's exactly what happened to Martin Luther. The setting apart by the Holy Spirit was as though the light from heaven shone into his soul to reveal the truth of Romans 1. He'd lectured on it for a year, but at that moment, a light shone so that he embraced the truth and believed the truth. There's a difference in talking about it and believing it. And he was set apart by the Holy Spirit who was working in his life so that he came to believe the truth. And he came to express it in five solars. Now, five solars, by Scripture alone, in Christ alone, 
by grace alone, through faith alone, with all the glory to God alone. So if ever you see solas, it's sola scriptura, solas Christus, sola gracia, sola fide, and sola dea gloria. Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, with all the glory to God alone. And it was a radical transformation in Martin Luther's life. It was the setting apart by the spirit and belief in the truth. One of the most exciting Saturday afternoons I've had for a long time was not football. I quite like football. It was the baptizing service that we had at Bethel just a few weeks ago. When Kimberly and Thomas gave testimony to what God had done in their lives. And the exciting thing for me, and I was saying, talking to Kimberly about it last night, was the difference in the testimony and how God was working in different ways through different situations, bringing them to faith in Christ. But that's your testimony, isn't it, if you're a Christian? That is your testimony, that it's been the setting apart by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, we have to stand on that. This is how we become a Christian. Stand firm. Stand fast. Now, number three. Remember number three, the marks of a Christian. Remember the marks of a Christian. And I think they're shown to us in verse 16. And it would be very easy to miss it, where Paul says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father. Now, what does that say about the marks of a Christian? I believe it's that personal term. He could have said, now may the Lord Jesus Christ and the God, and it would have been correct. But he says, our Lord Jesus Christ and our God and Father which brings that whole personal dimension to the marks of a Christian. You see, being a Christian is not something just abstract. It's not something just assenting to this, 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 and this. This is a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and with our Father in heaven. So when you sing, My Jesus, My Savior, Lord... There is none like you. That's really expressing the truth that the marks of a Christian is personal. Or the old hymn, mine, 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 I know thou art mine, is expressing that personal dimension. The reality of this not just being something for an hour on a Sunday morning. You know, people can go to church for an hour on a Sunday morning. And then walk out of the church and their lives are no different for the other 167 hours of the week. This is the personal reality of knowing Jesus. And the personal reality of having a heavenly father. I was talking to somebody recently who said he really struggled with the whole concept of God being a loving father. Because his own father had been so abusive towards him. All he had was bad memories of his father. And that's a reality in some people's lives. But 
our heavenly father never goes absent, never walks out, never does things in anger against us in the sense of an earthly father can, irrational. We have a loving heavenly father and that is our personal reality. And we're all prone to wonder, aren't we? We're prone to wonder from God to, in the words again of an old hymn, we're prone to wonder to leave the God we love. But there is that cry within us, this true cry within us, with all the things that bombard us day by day, the anti-Christian forces that bombard us. And despite our own terrible inconsistency at times as Christians, we still say, mine, <laughs> Jesus is mine. That is the mark of a Christian. And finally, number four, we need to remember and stand firm on that we have a future. That we have a future. Verse 14 talks about obtaining the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? How can we obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ? This is talking about something future. It's the theme of the coming of Christ. There is a future for the Christian. It's not just that we're here now and there's nothing beyond. There is a glorious future for those of us who believe. We will share in Christ's glory. And all of what that means sharing in the glory of Christ again. In an old hymn, which a few people will know, I'm sure, it's when all our labors and trials, and we go through work and trials, are over or or, and we are safe on that beautiful shore in heaven, that will be glory. Be glory for me, because we will share in his glory. And so with those four points, those four things, I believe in the context of this chapter of people being deluded, Paul is saying, Christian, remember who you are and what you have got and ensure this personal reality with the Lord Jesus Christ and God. Stand firm, hold fast to that. Of course, for the Thessalonians, the standing firm was in the context of all the rumors that were going around. And for us, the standing firm is in the context of the kind of world that we live in. Isn't it amazing that, you know, the Thessalonians, when he writes two Thessalonians, they probably only had one book, one New Testament book. That was one Thessalonians. We have the whole of the scriptures. We have 39, 27, 66 books. They had one New Testament book. We've got the whole of the New Testament. So in our prayer time this morning as we came to Hebrews chapter 10, what a great book Hebrews is. We've got the benefit of the whole of the New Testament. And we have, as the, the Apostle Paul is saying to us, to stand firm on these great truths. But we need to stand firm in our day and generation on the kind of things that are bombarding us secular humanism 
which says there is no God, that there is no spiritual reality. Gender equality, we have to stand firm on those issues. The whole anti-Christian dogma, which is present in education, in the media, and in political life. It's bombarding saying that Christians, this minority, this deluded minority, because that's often what we're referred to in the same way that that word delusion is used earlier in 2 Thessalonians. Well, we need to stand firm. Which brings us to the last few minutes. And that is, we need each other. We really do need each other. And so when Paul opens chapter 3 by saying, brethren, pray for us. Just think about that for a moment. This is Paul, the theologian, Paul, the apostle, Paul, the missionary, Paul, who must have led in prayer so many times, who wrote prayers that we've got in Ephesians, for example, some of the greatest prayers. Paul saying, please pray for me. Please pray for us. Why? That the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified. He wants the word of God to spread. And he wants prayer to enable the word of God to spread. Pray for us, he says, that the word of God would spread. Now just think back over the last few months. Holiday Bible Club. Are you still praying that the word of God, which was sown, would spread? Beach missions. Are you still praying that the word of God, which was sown, would spread? Camps that people may have gone on? All of those things where the word of God has been sown, we desire that it would run and spread. Angela and I go to a missionary prayer meeting um, once a month. And last week we went uh, to the missionary prayer meeting and there's a couple who went from Bridge Chapel um, called the Powers. And they've been for eight years in a Muslim uh, environment in an island called Mayot. And they've worked for eight years there. And last week was the first time they came with the news of a conversion and it was great just to be able to thank God that the word of God, which had been sown for eight years in that environment, was beginning to take a step and beginning to run. And, you know, it's a great thrill to see a conversion under those circumstances. And we need to pray. We need to stand firm and we need to pray. And we will stand firm if we support each other in this great task. And Paul is saying, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run and be glorified. And then finally, notice in verse 2 what he says. Isn't this practical? Pray that we might be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. Well, you look around our world today. Would you say there were some unreasonable and wicked men? I think you'd have to admit that in the world there are unreasonable and wicked men and women. This isn't, you know, it's using men, but it's people. 
And the Bible is asking us, Paul is asking us, to pray that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men so that the word of God may run and be glorified. Well, I hope there's something there for us to just think about and to stand firm on about our faith. And maybe we can ask Paul to pray for us. It'd be good to know Paul was praying for us, wouldn't it? Well, here's his prayer. Verses 16 and 17. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who loved us and has given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word that you speak and work. So Paul is using this prayer, which we can use, and pray that your words and your work when you go back next week, your word and your works would be established and that you and I would stand. Father, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for its relevance to us today. Just we look at these words and we can nearly see the Apostle Paul saying these things to the church in Thessalonica, but he's saying it to the church at Belvedere as well. Always remember these great foundational truths so that we might stand fast, stand firm, wherever we are, and that the word of God may run swiftly and be glorified. Help us, we pray, through the hours of this day. Give us a really good time of fellowship together, friendship with one another. And we pray that these things might be impressed upon our hearts, that we might glorify you in all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.